Hey there, friends. Pastor Paul Carter here from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Aurelia and the host of the End of the Word podcast with the End of the Word panel for another episode of Going Deeper. Joining me this week, I have my good friend, Pastor Rob Brockman from Living Hope Church in Georgetown, Dr. Wyatt Graham from TGC Canada, and Pastor Stephen Bray from St. John's, Newfoundland. So welcome to all of you. Thank you for joining me today. Hey, Paul. Glad to be here. Glad to be here. And a particular warm welcome to my brother, Stephen. You had me worried there last week. You had to pull out due to some health concerns. You want to give us a little bit of an update? Obviously, you're feeling better. Yeah, thank you very much. And I really appreciate, you know, this one of the, one of the little benefits that I think we don't talk about enough about the beauty of community and family in the family of God. Uh, so many people praying for me. So many people sending notes of encouragement. I just uh, had a few blood pressure issues that led to some... Uh, tingling in my arms and numbness in my fingers and when you're almost 50 those are the red red the uh, red alert things that go off and you get whisked off to the emergency center and next thing you know you're having ecgs and blood work and all that kind of stuff turns out when i really got into this um it helps if you take your medication consistently day after day and uh so over the christmas season my wife and I did some math and we, we discovered that I wasn't quite as consistent in my medications as I should have been, have seen the doctor. They are going to up my blood pressure pills a little bit. Um, but uh, by God's grace, I'm still doing well, celebrating my birthday today. And um, so enjoying my 49th birthday, sharing that me and president Joe Biden are sharing that together. And um, so we're having a bit of fun, but thanks guys for the, the love, the prayers and the support. Right on. Well, it's good to have you back brother. Yeah. Was a little worried about you, but uh, thank you to see you. Uh, one little housekeeping item just before we crack into it. Uh, some people like to watch this as opposed to listen to it. The vast majority of people listen to it as a podcast. Um, but some people like to see your, your beautiful smiling faces. Uh, so if you are one of those people who want to see this, the best way to do it is go to the end of the word YouTube page. So you just go to YouTube, type in into the word and uh, it should pop right up. And if you like or subscribe to that page or however that works, uh, then everything will pop up and you should be able to find it very easily. Uh, and uh, now that you know that some people wanna see your smiling faces, maybe you wanna smile, maybe, maybe you should wear a hat uh, or a costume, I have no idea, do, do whatever you need to do. Uh. All right, let's, uh, let's jump into it this week uh, right away. We have a lot of ground to cover once again and uh, plenty of things to talk about out of the book of Genesis. I want to start off with the first chapter that we read this week in Genesis, Genesis chapter 16. Uh, really interesting, odd, even at times distasteful story of uh, Sarah and Hagar. For those of you who need a little recap, uh, story basically goes, Sarah is convinced that God is, is restraining her or keeping her from having children. So she uh, wants to uh, do what she can to force God's hand or, or whatever it is she's thinking there. She tells Abraham to uh, take her servant Hagar as a sort of concubine to have sex with her and uh, to have a baby. Maybe the modern version of that would be God helps those who help themselves, trying to jumpstart the process. Uh, so Abraham does that, and then it creates all kinds of unhealthy marital dynamics, as, as we would well anticipate. Uh, Sarah becomes jealous and bitter towards Hagar, actually begins to abuse her. Hagar runs away, and God finds her in the desert. And really interesting, shocking. I, I put up a little post on the end of the word Facebook 
page as I read that, just feeling like this might actually be the most offensive verse in the Bible. Here we have an abused slave running away from an oppressive mistress, and God meets her in the desert and says, go back to your mistress. So God doesn't rescue her out of her oppression, actually sends her right back into a very difficult circumstance with the promise that he will be with her and he will bless her in it. So I, I want to talk about that, but then I also want to talk about how this really weird story is picked up and used by the Apostle Paul. Uh, Paul actually refers to the story as an allegory and uh, has this very interesting allegorical interpretation in Galatians 4, 24 to 26. He says, now, this, referring to our story, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She's Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, and on and on. So, Brother Wyatt, uh, lead us into a conversation about this very interesting passage. If you can, try to hit on both of those, this, this strange aspect of God's providence that sometimes he sends us back into or keeps us in difficult circumstances. He blesses us in adversity as opposed to uh, releasing us from adversity. And then maybe also get us started on the conversation about allegorical interpretations. Is that legit? Is that permissible? Uh, should we be doing that as, as modern day preachers? If so, when and how far should should we take those allegories? Yeah, so I'll go sky high and we can kind of work out the details. I think I'll try to just be short here. But in short, God's providence is a non-Bible word that describes the way in which God guides and controls history. To kind of use the language of John Calvin, it's this idea of God's fatherly care of the world. But as you noted, bad things happen. So we live in a fallen and broken world where humans choose and, and sin and do evil. So one of the benefits of God's providence as a theological item is to see that in the end, God's care and goodness can actually win out. We can in fact be blessed even through trials and tribulations. So James 1 talks about sort of the famous passage in Romans 8, um, all things work together for good for those who love uh, God. I think I slightly misquoted it, but that's the idea. So that's, that's a big picture of providence. We can dive into that story and talk through how that works out in the life of Hagar. When it comes to allegory, it's an interesting thing in this passage in Galatians, in Galatians 4. I would say this, there's two questions. One is, is Paul doing allegory? And the second is, what is he actually doing? Uh, the first, I would just say yes, because he says, I am doing allegory. Yeah. <laughs> so he is. I, I, that felt like a trick question. <laughs> yeah, it's not a trick question, but there is a discussion where a lot of people think, well, maybe he's, he's using that word, but doing something different. And I just say, well, he says he's doing allegory. So he is. Yeah. Uh, the second question is, is, what is he actually doing? And I think part of this is in the 21st century, when we think of allegory, we're like, it means you just make up something yeah. uh, sometimes. But if you look at what Paul's saying, he's really tied to the Genesis story. He's using the imagery, the narrative, the whole story of the Pentateuch and trying to tie that together. And I think what he's doing, and we can kind of talk about this, is kind of what pastors do on Sunday. He's just showing how uh, the Bible, we can use the metaphors and ideas to make sense of life today. And so I think that's kind of what he's getting at. And if you look at the whole history of the church from the uh, patristics to the Puritans and further, uh, people have used similar forms of argument and pastoral care. It's a relatively normal way to go about it. So I would say from my point of view, uh, I think we're allowed to do allegory in the way that Paul does it and he does it. So I don't feel like I need to defend that too much, but I realize that some people maybe go way too far and there's some discussion that we can have. So that's my big picture summary of Providence and allegory. And I'd be happy to dive into some of the details. 
Oh, panel, jump in first. Maybe we'll, we'll hit uh, providence and then we'll hit allegory. Jump in on sort of the dark providence of God. Well, one of the things about Genesis that's my favorite thing is the fact that it, to me, it proves over and over again as a 21st century Christian in our 21st century world um, that the Bible couldn't have been a conspiracy of humans. You would never write it this way, no. um, you know, because the true only hero is God. And one of the low level things for me, I, I love making this stuff real simple. Um, we're playing checkers. God's always playing like four dimensional chess. <laughs> he, he is taking people, real people with real emotions and yet constantly doing what Joseph said, right? You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Um, no doubt Hagar feels the pressure of this, the, the angst, the, the, the emotions, the, the fear. And God had a plan the entire time, a plan that was going to protect her, a plan that was going to keep his promises to Israel, a plan that was going to expose sin for what it was, and a plan for showing the gospel. And I love it that he is, he is being true and a just God through all of this. And yet all of these pieces are being played out for a grand scheme. And for me, it just bolsters me to trust my savior. Even when I'm in circumstances that are unpleasant, I can't explain. It doesn't even feel fair. It gives me something to give hope to. And because now when you look at the world's alternatives of karma, Murphy's law, luck, bad things happen to good people. I think those things are such despairing ways of looking at life. And this gives me something to lock into. Mm. Yeah. And I think, I think one of the, the great hopes that the gospel gives us is, is sovereignty. And that's, that's a hope that we can have. That's a trust that we can have as believers. So much of pastoral ministry is just getting people to like, not get stuck looking down in the muck and mire and looking up and reminding themselves of this gospel narrative. The Lord's in control. The Lord is sovereign. He's doing things for his own purposes. And so I think that there is, that's a great hope that the gospel gives us that we can cling to and provides peace in all kinds of circumstances. In terms of the allegory thing, I think I would just add like, I'm a lot more comfortable with Paul doing allegory than I am with us. <laughs> so uh, I like it I'm, when it's in the Bible. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, Paul says, I'm going to do some allegory. I'm like, okay. But if somebody else yeah. starts doing allegory, I kind of, I'm a bit more cautious. Yeah, that's interesting. I, so you know, obviously we, it, it's hard not to read the Bible from our present moment, right? And I don't, why would we? Um I forget now who, whether it was Calvin or Luther, or, um, but somebody said we read the Bible better in affliction. Who is it that said that? Luther. Was it Luther? Yeah. And, and I just think that's true. We're, it, we never have to apologize for reading the Bible from our moment, uh, as long as we're not doing damage from our moment. Yeah. But as I read this story in Genesis 16 from this moment, this COVID-19 moment, I wonder if, if we jump too quickly to political thoughts as opposed to providential thoughts. Um, you, you know, the theme of this past year has been both social justice and how we, we interact with the secular state. Those have been the two biggest conversations of the evangelical church. And I just think this story is an interesting challenge to both of those conversations or, or the way we've been having those conversations. Here, here's a woman who's a slave and she's being abused. So she's in an unjust situation. She's being treated unfairly. And yet God's primary interest is not in removing her from that situation, which, which is not to say that slavery is good. That, that's not even the conversation. The, the point is God, Stephen, you made the, the point that God's playing four-dimensional chess. The point is that God's playing the long game. And 
And he's less focused on these external structures and, and more focused on the progress of his promise. Mm. In Hagar's life, uh, Anne and Abraham's family, and mm. in humanity in general. And I just think sometimes God is, is looking at different values, looking at different concerns. We're all agitated at, at the, the realm of the level of our experience. God is looking, you know, three billion years down the road. And mm -hmm. God is, is looking way deeper into our soul. Less, less concerned with our circumstances, more concerned with our soul. And I just wonder if we've missed it. Like, I, I see so many people agitated and angry about political agency in this current struggle. And almost no one asking questions about providence. Mm -hmm. What is God doing? Uh, what's his purpose for the church? What's his purpose for me in this? Am I on the wrong page here? Are you seeing this story as a bit of a rebuke to our current process? I yeah. think there's some, go on, sorry. Well, I was just going to say, Paul, like, absolutely. I think one question we don't ask ourselves enough in this is like, okay, what kind of growth have I been through, through this that I would not have been through otherwise? Yeah. What, what kind of life seasons, what kind of changes has the Lord brought into my life because of what I'm going through that he wouldn't have if this wouldn't have happened? And, that, and then when you do that math and you start looking back and asking yourself those questions, you start to see, yeah, if it wasn't for that, then this conversation wouldn't have happened. And then that response, and I wouldn't have learned that. And I wouldn't be where I am today. And, and as opposed to being like, oh, this is wrong. This shouldn't be happening. I kind of, that's, that's something scary about God's sovereignty. When I'm like, this should not be happening. It's kind of like, well, I don't know. Like if the Lord intended it, he's got good purposes. Maybe I should be thinking about why. Yeah. We believe in God's sovereignty when things are going well in our life, but then when things are going poorly, we, we obsess over human agency. Yes. <laughs> well, I think something you said, Paul too, is like, you got to look way far ahead. And I, I don't know if this is entirely significant, but Ishmael does marry an Egyptian. Egypt plays a massive role role in the genesis narrative and the whole bible's narrative they're either the antagonist or that are kind of the good guys at one point but finally you find out in isaiah 19 verse 25 that they actually become the means of the of an abrahamic blessing to the world and they're called i think my people there by god and so it's this great reversal that happens and it might be that we're supposed to look at this with this kind of far out glance at god's overarching providential control of history rather than the moment and we might be getting too political and fighting over the things that are in the present, but forgetting what's 10, 20, 50, 100, 200 years from now going to have, going to look to be like. So the only other thing I would answer, answer to that too, guys, and you hit on it, Paul, as Christians, let's be honest, we love sovereignty when it goes to our favor. And we're, we're not in love with sovereignty if it's not going in our favor, but from the 30,000 foot view to the, bringing it right down to Hagar and Ishmael, God takes care of that woman and her son. Yeah, he he does he doesn't take her out of her circumstances, but he promises to be with her and take care of her, and he fulfills that. Walks her, and in fact, Ishmael becomes the father of twelve great na uh, tribes or nations, just like the promise was. Mm. Now, long game into the allegory of Galatians, Paul reminds us that yeah, and God had a plan to use this as an object lesson of the law versus the gospel. When Sarah decided to take things into her own hand, uh, it didn't work out. The law never does. It can't save you, but the gospel will. And so right to the intricacies of just a woman and her son, God took care of them. Back all the way to the meta-narrative of scripture woven from Genesis all the way up into, into Galatians, God is using that set of circumstances 
to accomplish his will on so many levels. So if that's true and we all get excited, I've never been in a room where guys and gals don't get excited about that. Uh, okay, then let's apply that to 2020 or 2021, January the 20th and new president elections here in Newfoundland, you know, vaccine rolls out, rollout restrictions. We really don't think God doesn't have a plan. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I might just ask one question of the text. We didn't really get to it, but you read it. Sixteen nine. Yeah. God says, go back to your mistress and submit to her, to her authority. After saying in verse six, Sarai, Sarai mistreated her so much that she ran away. Yeah. Like, I mean, there's even some of this in the New Testament where slaves are meant to have respect and honor their owners, but what yet we don't think slavery is good. So when we read that passage and it's a word of God, like, is that good? Like, how do we work that out? I, I think that's important to ask. Yeah, no, it's, and, and of course, we get into this with the slavery passages in, in the New Testament as well, where it does not appear that the that the Bible is uh, in, intending to to foment revolution. Rather, the approach appears to be subversive, um, the, 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 the institution is undermined, but but always God's playing the long game. And, it appears- yeah, and I wonder if Isaiah, Isaiah 53 is part of the answer, too. A lamb yeah. led to the slaughter, quiet without a word. Yeah. What a what a figure, the suffering servant that we don't imitate too often today. Yeah. It's certainly <laughs> the only other caution. The conversation I... stands as a rebuke to our immediate approach of of hostility towards external agency when we're mm. when when we're experiencing yeah. injustice. That's just not then, the Christian way. And to be clear, like I think the Bible also tells us to resist injustice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. and to pursue justice and goodness so therefore i'm not saying to be okay with injustice i am saying when you're in a situation that you can't control right. isaiah 53 is a good example to follow but that was my only caution like i don't want our listeners to think that we're saying the bible is okay with this the the fact that god still works within the evil of humanity and still mm-hmm. accomplishes his will does not mean he's endorsing the evil absolutely Right. And so that's, you know, because when you get your 21st century reader going, well, you Christian, like, no, no, read your whole Bible. In fact, step back and see in the face of our evil, he still commits love and makes a comp. I was reading this in my devotions this morning. um, In one of the Psalms, he, he makes sure that justice is victorious. Mm. And so Hagar goes back and yes, and she's told to go back. And yet she was going to see firsthand that God was going to settle this for her. Yeah, I think one of the most important things, you know, if we're going to do a quick course on providence, is to understand that, that God does address all the things that we want him to address. Like when we right. say, oh, what, what, what about injustice? What about this? Oh, no, God's working on all that. He, but he works very, 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 very slow. And he tends to bring change from the ground up. Um, Interestingly, Paul, Yep. That our own world says the wheels of justice grind slowly. Yeah. Like even our own culture realizes that, but we live in a fast food culture now where we think, I just want it all now. Yeah. And if the injustice touches upon us, we want God's solution to be immediate. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, so uh, yeah, yeah, good, good points. Uh, as to switching just for a moment over to allegory, making sure we say something useful or, or helpful there, because uh, I know that the that allegory is to most evangelicals something that we're allergic to, um, and and that's just our Protestant heritage. Uh, Luther and Calvin railed against uh, allegorical interpretations, 
Uh, nevertheless, uh, I, I think we've maybe found the ditch on the other side of the road, which is that we have developed an inability to see the patterns and the typology that is all throughout the scripture. Uh, there, are, there are shapes, there are patterns that are used and that recur again and again and again and again that we're meant to see and meant to appreciate. And we evangelicals probably need to work at reading the Bible this way, that when we see a pattern, expect to see it again applied here, there, or, or elsewhere, because God is, is patiently teaching in all these stories. F.F. Uh, Bruce has a, has a great article. If anybody out there wants to think a little bit more about that, just Google primary and plenary meaning of scripture ff bruce and a great article will come up where he he walks through this he he kind of transcends the category of allegory and typology and he actually speaks in maybe words that are a little more accessible although not a great deal more accessible primary and plenary he says so primary there's there's what did the story originally mean what was this story actually about and then plenary means, and then what's the further application and development of this story, both in the biblical canon and, and even in Christian discourse following. So that's an extremely useful uh, article and, and a, a great thing to get our heads uh, into. I think a lot of people are cautious about allegory too, because a lot of the time it's used to um, uh, say that this didn't happen. Right. Like, this is a story. This didn't actually, you know, Noah's Ark, ah, it's an allegory. And I think that's where that's where some hesitation comes by is just dismissing biblical narratives. I think yeah, the greatest well, safeguard, the greatest safeguard to that though, I think, is reading the New Testament and seeing what the apostles actually do. Because I, I would argue, if they're doing things like Jude five, uh, Jesus led Israel out of the wilderness. First Corinthians ten, the rock was Christ. Yeah. All these passages, however you want to interpret them, I'm not saying that it's one way or the other. Something is going on there that I don't think is tied to just anything you want to say about anything. There's a Christ-centered narrative-based way of reading the Old Testament that makes it present, that makes it Christ-centered in a way that is totally copyable and mm. reasonable. And it's not just like making things up. Kind of, well, Paul was already saying it. No, but to, to, you're right. To, to, to argue for a plenary meaning, to use Bruce's terminology, is not to argue against a primary meaning. Yeah. So what did yeah. the story originally mean? Yeah. So to say that Noah's Ark features as a, as a metaphor in First Peter is not to say it never happened. No, no, it, it happened. It, it, so the story had an original meaning, it had a primary meaning, but then it, there's a pattern there. There's a, there's a, uh, a typology that, that we need to be comfortable using. Well, I think Ephesians 5 is a great example. So Paul can talk about the family and marriage. And then when he gets to marriage, he interprets Genesis 2 and says, look, there's a mystery here. And that mystery yeah. is Christ in the church. Yeah. <laughs> so that, therefore, we, gotta look, we look at marriage a little bit differently today now that the mystery has been un unveiled. Before we leave Genesis, uh, I want to hit one other story, and it, it sort of uh, touches a little bit on, on what we were talking about a few minutes ago, just the story of the testing of Abraham. Fascinating story. In my own life, this, this story was, was, had a huge impact, just discovering how God works, helping to understand uh, how struggles and difficulties work, understanding that God is always communicating with his people through the language of challenge and response. Uh, I can point to this passage as one of the, the big passages in terms of unlocking my own understanding. Uh, but it's a, it's a very odd story. Uh, the beginning, Genesis 22, first two verses. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. So God tests Abraham. He, we're told that as the reader, Abraham's not, not told that it's a test, obviously. Uh, but so Abraham 
responds. I read this this morning in, in my devotions. The story is gripping every time you read it. Uh, I, I, you know, I have children. I, I cannot imagine doing this. Uh, just the, the raw emotion of it. He, he takes his, his son. They're walking together. Uh, he, they're, they're approaching the mountain. And so Abraham says to the servants, you know, you guys stay here. I and the boy will go and we will come back. So there's, there's faith written into the story, but also just tremendous risk, tremendous trust. Isaac asks the question, you know, dad, we've got the wood, we got the fire, where's the lamb? Then you have this great uh, verse. It's the gospel in the old Testament. God himself will provide the lamb, my son. Mm. So they go up the mountain, Abraham seizes Isaac. I don't know how that works. My, my son's bigger than I am now, so I, I'm not sure exactly how that would go, but he grabs him, ties him up, uh, sticks him on the, on the altar there. And he's, as he's just about to plunge the knife down into his breast, uh, God says, Abraham, stop. Uh, for now, I know, and uh, provides, provides the ram. So this was all, all a test. God was exploring, probing. God is communicating. He wants to know Abraham. He wants to explore his faith, see where he's at, test him, grow him. It's an extremely intimate story. Uh, and it tells us something about God that we need to know, that, that this is what God does. He, he is not a dispassionate observer. He's intimately involved. He's ordaining circumstances so that he can explore us. I think that's fascinating. J. Alec Machir has a great line that I love. He says, there's no such thing as an untried faith. Mm -hmm. So a couple of questions come to mind out of the story. I'm just going to fire them at you. Why does God test us? Number two, how can we know if we're being tested? Number three, what should we do if we're being tested? And, and then number four, how come the Lord's prayer has a saying, lead us not into temptation or trial or test, but deliver us from evil? Why are we praying that? if this is an important aspect of God's providential work in our lives. So Pastor Stephen, why don't you get us started on that one? Well, like you, Paul, this is one of my favorite uh, passages in all of the Bible. I just, I love this, but let me, let me go back. I actually would, would just push back a little bit in the sense. I, I think our audience needs to make sure we know the difference between testing and temptation. Because I think sometimes we use these words interchangeably, and the Bible seems to go out of its way to let us know that one is not like the other. Um, the other thing I want to help our... In Greek, it's the same word. Right, right. So now, we do, it, this, is, this is useful. Help people distinguish. Right. So I, I want to also help our, our audience to know that when they read the Bible and they come to these types of passages, always remember this. Scripture interprets Scripture, and Scripture doesn't contradict itself. So when we come to these things, that now that's an invitation for you and I to dig. To, to not settle. And then I also want to make sure we, because we know from the New Testament, we can go back and in James chapter one, James goes out of his way to say, don't let anybody say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, because God doesn't tempt anybody with evil. And, and, right, right. and again, in that, in that prayer of, of Jesus in the model prayer, lead us not in temptation, but what do you say, but deliver us from evil. And I, and again, I think that he's teaching his disciples how to deal with their own sinfulness and the things they expose themselves to. The other thing we deal with with this is let's make sure we always know that God does formatively as well as correctively discipline us. Yeah. We get focused very much on corrective discipline. I've done something wrong. Now God needs to correct me because that's the story of our lives a lot. But there's a lot of discipline in our life, aka testing that is formative. 
And I give this example all the time. My kids are out in the backyard. They're playing. The I notice that the room is messy. They haven't done anything wrong. I go out and say, hey, kids, listen, come inside, make your bed, clean your room, whatever. I'm They, I, they didn't disobey me. I am training them. I'm forming them to have good habits. I'm forming them to understand responsibility. And I think there's a key in our passage. You hit on it when you read it. After these things. Now, again, why you mentioned this about throwaway parts of our Bible sometimes. Remember what's happened back in chapter 21. It's almost like it's been the culmination of Abraham's life. It's been a comedy of faith and error right? It's he obeys God, leaves Ur, but then he lies. He, he has no faith about Sarah, not once, but twice. He messes up, listens to her, gets Hagar pregnant, all that stuff. We've just talked about it. But finally, you have the birth of Isaac. Finally, everything is coming together. All the promises are happening. And not, not only that, but don't miss it. In the second half of 21, there's the treaty with Abimelech. This is the same Abimelech that he was lying to saying, Sarah's my sister and all of this kind of stuff. So life is good. Mm. And it's after these things that God now says, I am going to form even more deeply Abraham into what he does and why he does it. And it's for us, for the audience, for us to see, this is the process of sanctification. Now, all of a sudden, Abraham can handle these types of tests. He's been through it. He's lived enough of the life now to understand this is what happens when I don't listen. This yeah. is what happens when I don't trust. And God brings this into his life. And this is why we see such great strength. In fact, if you've read the first 21 chapters, you're almost in shock. How did Abraham pass this? <laughs> right? And yet you're seeing the progression of his faith, the growth of his faith. I don't think this was, this was the ultimate test to his faith, but I fully expect that God wanted us to see he was going to pass it because he'd already seen that God is faithful in the face of his unfaithfulness. And so I think for our audience, it's helpful to realize that when we go to God, don't if, if sometimes I go through things and it's because I've given into temptation, James gives me a full breakdown of what I had heard as right as at the LSD trip, trip, Satan's LSD lost sin, death, right? That <laughs> temptation, temptation will always take us into sin. Testing is meant to always take us to God yeah, and good. to give us a bigger view of God. Yeah. I, the, the difference between testing and temptation in our perspective is very helpful. Mm. I, a lot of it has to do with with the desired outcome, right? So when right. what it, the funny thing is, you can be tested and tempted at the same time in the same sets of circumstances, <laughs> uh, right? Like in in any test, the devil has an outcome that he's seeking that is destructive, right. and God has an outcome that he's seek, seeking that is constructive. So God right. is testing, God is forming, and and the devil is tempting, but all in the right. same sets of circumstances. That's important yep. for people to realize. Like we don't need to say, well, in this current circumstance, is this is this circumstance a test or a temptation? Well, the answer is both. Uh, right? God's using it to to form you and grow you and strengthen you and know you, and and the devil's hoping to to seize upon it to bring about harm. Um, so that's that's a helpful distinction. Yeah, Rob, you were going to jump in there, I think. Yeah, I just I love what he when when the author of Hebrews he throws us in is like oh. Maybe Abraham believed, Abraham believed that God could even raise him from the dead. Yeah. And I just think one, one of the, the things of reasons why we're tested, First uh, Peter tells us in First Peter, is that faith that is tested and that is genuine glorifies God. Yeah. Like faith that is 
like that kind of faith where I go, Hey, even if my, if I'm not going to kill my son and God, God, I believe God can raise him from the dead. That kind of faith gives God such glory. And I think that's one, one of the purposes behind kind of suffering and trial in our lives and, and testing is it's an opportunity. Like that's the best praise band. You know, like a faith that trusts God in every situation. That's a glorifying act of worship that really pleases the Lord. I think we undervalue that sometimes um, just because of the hardship, but it's like, man, me going through this stuff and struggling through it and having to cling to faith and trust that God will deliver on his promises, man, that glorifies God. Peter tells it's us It's the Job story all over again, right? Like, yeah. I mean, yeah. The uh, one thing I might add, just a lot of what Steve was saying is we shouldn't undervalue the value of going through a trial and suffering. I'm reminded of Hebrews 5, 8 that said that even the son of God, Jesus, although he was a son, he learned obedience to the things that he suffered. And remember Jesus in that, in this book is our forerunner. He's the person, he's the first Christian, the one who goes before us and shows us how to live. And sometimes we view suffering as entirely negative. And I'm not saying that is a good word. We live in a cursed world, but entirely negative in that any suffering is bad. We've got to push all of it away and hide from it. And yet, Actually, this is a means by which we are conformed to Christ's life. And I mean, eternity is a long time. Yeah. <laughs> uh, these are things that are material life is super important, but we're also going to ascend to God, have a resurrection body, live for thousands and thousands of years. And that pursuit of virtue of goodness of Christ now through suffering is worthwhile because it has eternal consequences. That's good. Well, I think it's helpful too, guys. Don't miss two things. One, Everywhere in the New Testament that references this, it's always in the positive terms of this, Abraham did this and it was counted unto him as righteousness, right? Like this is a very positive story all through the New Testament and how, and the outcome. But I think you've hit on something, Wyatt, that we struggle with the moment we go through hardship. And you mentioned Job. What was the assumption of all of Job's buddies, even Job struggled with this and his wife was, what evil did I do? Like, why, why is God mad at me? Why is he punishing me? And the whole narrative was for him to learn. God wasn't upset with you, right? And that's why I think after these things, up to this point, Abraham has failed every test. He really has. He's, he's punted it every time. And this is the time he finally goes, I get it. This is an amazingly hard thing that God's asking of me, but he has been faithful. I will trust him. And I know mm -hmm. this is forming me. Yeah. And it's an Can example say, of what it means for you and I to trust. Yeah. There's one more verse I just think is so important. Hebrews 12, 8. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Right. What father loves his child and doesn't form him into a good and virtuous person? Right. The fact that we go through trials while they stink is confirmatory of our faith. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is for assurance is so massively important. Right. Yeah. It's forming our, our full and true self into the image of Christ. It's massive. Well, these two stories that we've been talking about, uh, Genesis 16 and 22, are a an absolute rebuke to prosperity gospel. Yeah. Uh, one is saying, God's not going to lift you out of your bad circumstance. He's going to bless you in your bad circumstance. That's right. And the other is saying that tests and trials in life are, are actually an indication of God's love and covenant commitment, which is the opposite of what the prosperity gospel says, which is that the absence of those things is, is promise of, of God's love and commitment or a, a manifestation of God's love and commitment. So these yeah. two chapters together ought to be the pill that cures 
uh, of prosperity gospel if we're if we're reading the Bible honestly. And maybe maybe one more color to this is just you know sometimes I feel like any just because you're suffering doesn't mean you're being tested <laughs> because sometimes we can draw suffering into especially as believers like sometimes we have a bit of a complex where you know it kind of allows us to act like jerks and then when we suffering comes from that we can go oh i'm just being bold in the lord you know i'm being faithful to the word and <laughs> it's to make our own suffering <laughs> yeah exactly and i think you know peter says what good is it if you suffer for doing evil like that's that's not the point here you should be suffering for doing good and I think that's a reminder just because the world's persecuting us doesn't mean necessarily mean we're doing what's right in that situation. Um, and there's a tension there that we need to balance. Yeah. And I would also say, Rob, a good point for our readers is that none of the people we're talking about, even Abraham himself, we're not talking about being artificially happy because we're going through hard times. Yeah. It is. God is perfectly, uh, nor it, it is totally normal for you and I to go from our point of view, this stinks. And that's what I love the Psalms for, Yeah, uh, you, you know? Um, and I think that the seatbelt to what you're talking about is not only the verse that Peter quotes, but then James in James five, if any of you are sick, whatever, let them call the elder and confess your sin to one another. And we have to look into the mirror of that. But some, the, the, one of the ways, you know, it's testing is when you legitimately go, I, I, I'm walking with the Lord, like things are good. And that's why I think that after these things is so important in that chat, Abraham had really been hitting the home runs. He was really doing it well. And now all of a sudden his whole world is going to be rocked. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened with Job and everything else. But I think our readers in a 21st century world, we vacillate between this wrong kind of suffering or is the Bible telling me I just got to grin and bear it and, yeah. and just act like, well, Jesus is making me suffer today and it doesn't affect me. No, it yeah. does affect you. Yeah. And God's not put off or aggravated or impatient because you're, you're going to him going, Lord, well, let me quote my savior. Lord, if there's any way for this cup to pass from me, Mm -hmm. I don't like this. <clears throat> Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Mm. Yeah. For right? the joy set before him. Right. He still sweat blood that was like tears. Right. <clears throat> and so it preserves actual grief and suffering. And that's important that we need to recognize. But yes. we're also playing this place in the, the situation of hope. And there's a, a joy coming to us. Yeah. Well, we could probably talk about stories in Genesis uh, all day long. Yeah. But I want to make sure we hit all four of the columns. Uh, in uh, in Nehemiah, we had a really speaking of favorite passages. Nehemiah eight is probably uh, you know a favorite passage with a lot of pastors. It is a passage from which a lot of us derive our understanding of of what preaching is and how preaching done uh, according to this pattern can bring life and renewal to a church. So, Rob, give us a little guided tour of Nehemiah eight and maybe the philosophy of preaching that is often derived from it. Yeah, I mean, this is a great passage on the power of the word of God when it's proclaimed kind of faithfully. Um, there are no cool, fancy lights or alliterations. It's just kind of the word of God, the scriptures read in the hearing of God's people then explained to them. And then we see just the response of what happens. So, so in the text, you know, uh, Ezra opens up the law of Moses and he just proclaims what it says. And this proclamation leads to these returned exiles experiencing, it's like a revival almost. They hear the word, there's worship, there's praise. 
and they're they become convicted. They realize that, hey, we need to obey. There's something we should be doing in this month, even that we should be responding to. And it's just, there's this wonderful revival and conviction that spreads across the people. And, and it's, it's powerful. And so, yeah, a lot of us, when we, we, we want to see this kind of work happening in our churches every Sunday, when we open the word and we proclaim it. So just a couple things maybe to kind of to highlight in terms of what this means when it comes to preaching and, and kind of goals we should have that we can maybe draw from the text. I think number one, you know, biblical preaching should really be proclaiming and explaining the word of God. I think that's kind of what we need to set our feet on. Um, it says that, again, in the beginning, all the people gathered and Ezra brought the law before the assembly. And actually, in later in verse 8, it said there's actually um, Levites in the crowd helping to exposit and explain what he's saying. I think it's a language thing. Probably they, did, they had forgotten the Hebrew or they didn't speak it anymore. So they're translating, but they're making sure that people understand uh, the text. So that's a key thing. Like we're just preaching the word here. We're giving the people the word of God and they're responding. We're explaining it. Yeah. Um, it produces joy and worship, you know, verse six, um, people, the people are blessing the Lord. Ezra's blessing the Lord. People raise their hands. Amen. Amen. They bow their heads. They worship the Lord, their faces on the ground. Um, verse 17, even towards the end, it says there was a very great rejoicing. So, you know, when the word is preached, the word is proclaimed. One of the things that happens in us is, man, our hearts are stirred in affection for the Lord because of his goodness and because of the scriptures. That's, that's, that's a key thing we want to see in our, in our preaching. It produces obedience. Like I said, he reads the section of the law where it talks about the Feast of Tabernacles that's supposed to be done in the seventh month. And they're like, oh, we're in the seventh month. And uh, they, they just go, man, we need to do this. And so everybody grabs their booths. And of course, Feast of Tabernacles, again, was a reflection back on the Exodus and Israel kind of living in tents in this journey. And so uh, they celebrate this. And there's this obedience that comes from hearing the word of God preached, which is very cool. And I think the most important thing that I think that comes from this text is verse four. And it says this, Ezra stood on a wooden platform. Pulpits need to be wooden. Like, I, want to, I want to say that. None of this plexiglass. Well, that's clearly the main point. Yeah, that's the main point. You yeah. know, no metal music stands. Like, it's wooden pulpit. Yeah. Like the prow of a ship. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. I want to get splinters and bleed. Well, Rob, you and I must come from different because my favorite verse in this is, is that he started from early morning and went to midday. Yeah. So like big, long sermons are only biblical. <laughs> I, uh, I was reading a preaching book. I can't remember which, which book it was, but there was a, a reflection from Al Mohler on this passage. And uh, he, he said that, you know, the basic evangelical approach to ex expository preaching is derived from this text and he says it's not rocket science he says you read the text you explain the text you apply the text yeah. and it's like washing your hair repeat as yeah. necessary <laughs> um and uh, I, I think that's a very uh, simple analysis of the text but but also an appropriate analysis of the text it's, yeah. a, it's a great story to to revisit the power of expository preaching mm -hmm. yeah well there's more we could say there obviously as preachers we could talk all day about that but i i, I want to move into the new testament we've got a couple really interesting passages to explore uh, Matthew 16, obviously, is uh, one of the big passages you have to wrap your head around to develop a theological system to really understand uh, your Bible, the church, the kingdom of God, all those good things. 
first, there's a couple passages I want to hit there. The first one in Matthew 16 I want to grab onto is Matthew 16, 5 to 12. Uh, this is a great passage in terms of uh, developing your hermeneutic, which we've been talking about, how we're reading the Bible, how we're interpreting the Bible. So the story is, you know, Jesus and his disciples are traveling around. Uh, they're going from one side of the lake to the other. As they get to the other side of the lake, the disciples realize they forgot to pack bread. So they start having a conversation about that. Jesus does what a good teacher does, seizes upon uh, a conversation, a point of interest in order to make an, an ultimate uh, application to grab onto the immediate in order to say something enduring. And uh, so he says, Matthew 16, verse six, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, the disciples don't understand what he's talking about. They, they take it in an immediate sense. They start thinking, is, you know, is Jesus telling us not to buy bread from the Pharisees? What, what's going on here? And, and Jesus rebukes them and says, oh, you have little faith. Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000? How many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I'm not speaking about bread? Beware of the leaven and the, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, verse 12. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So they realize, okay, Jesus is talking about spiritual influence here. Now we understand. So here's the question. Is it possible for us to actually adopt a too literal approach to scripture? Is it possible for a Bible-believing, you know, evangelical Christian to actually read the Bible too literally? Uh, how do we move from principle to application as, as the disciples struggled to do uh, without losing the original spirit of the text? Those are the, the questions I'm asking. It's a hermeneutics question, uh, which for those listening on hermeneutics just means how we interpret or how we read the Bible. So I'm throwing out that to the panel in general. Well, I would say oh, in, in general, yeah, yeah. in general, I, I think if you read the Bible literally, it's good. And in fact, if we understand what literal means, just reading the text for what it means. Right. So then what you're actually asking is, can we attempt to do that badly? <laughs> so when Jesus says, I am the door, we're like, oh, he's a square door, which he's, he's not, right? So I think uh, we need to read the Bible literally. I do think there's a bad way. We're not taking advantage of the metaphors, the, the forms that it's given. Uh, here, it's pretty obvious. There's a divine mind behind scripture. Jesus is trying to teach us spiritual things through regular, mundane, everyday illustrations. And one of the things I find really interesting in church history is there's, there's always this idea that pops up or often sometimes is that God gives us really simple things as we know, but scripture is deep enough where we can kind of just meditate on it and allow our curiosity to pursue what's being said there kind of forever. And there's a unique uh, kind of quality to scripture that lets us meditate on a passage for a day or a year and 10 years and still kind of understand it in a more deeper and fuller way. Yeah. I actually think the beauty of this too, Paul, is that the, the disciples do the very thing that he has warned them of, right? They're taking him, telling him about a principle and they're turning it into something literal. Yeah. And this is the theme that the, you know, as your readers have been reading this, this Bible uh, program to get through Matthew, this has been on display from Matthew one on of the idea where Jesus is constantly saying, you know, even in the Sermon on the Mount, you interpret the law like this. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you, and then he explains the principle, the spirit, the motive. And in some cases, he elevates the law to make it impossible. And then in other cases, he lowers it into the point of 
guys, you have so messed, messed this up and missed the boat. I, I smile at stuff like this because I can identify with the disciples. <laughs> um, and so I think when we get into the idea of literal interpretation, I'm with Wyatt, you, you know, we are needing to let the scripture say what it says. I think what we're trying to do the moment you think I found something and now I'm going to inject that or, or project that on everybody else as if I figured out some new thing, all of your antennas should go off. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, the funny part, Jesus said, I'm going to build my church, you know, and so you have 2000 years of this happening. So the Holy Spirit teaches us through 2000 years, gives us leaders for the church. And, and sometimes if you, if you invent something new, you should be very suspicious of that. Yeah. <laughs> like Charles Spurgeon yeah. didn't have the spirit too. Like he, like he never discovered this. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of a funny point of view anyways. I think as well, we can be, we can be inappropriately literate by, you know, not understanding what kind of genre like we're reading, right? right. Like, so so yeah. there can be things like that. If I don't understand what kind of genre this is, if this is a parable, like then I, I'm, I'm being, so if you're telling me if there wasn't actually a parable of the talents, this wasn't a true story, it has no value. Like that's where we can be inappropriately literate. Um, yeah. We also need to remember like overarching like biblical teaching on issues. So if something happens in a narrative and I want to draw a law from it or something, I need, I can't just be inappropriately literate and, and go, well, it says it, therefore we must follow it while ignoring the rest of the scriptures or the narrative, the, the redemptive narrative even. So I think those are some principles, like what kind of literature am I reading? You know, what's the Bible teaching on this elsewhere? And where am I in like the redemptive narrative? I think those help us from being inappropriately literate. Yeah, no, that's literal. That's, and I think it's always helpful. I know this, you know, you're using a big word, uh, hermeneutics, mm -hmm. but for our average listener, just listen, scripture interprets itself and yeah. scripture doesn't contradict itself. So when you feel you've read something and you're facing that, now, you know, the pressure is actually on you because the Bible's consistent. It doesn't contradict itself and it, it interprets itself. So that just means we're gonna draw, dive into this more. And if you think you're the one that's now gonna explain it, again, all your antennas should go off, right? Yeah, no, good. I, I think the, the main thing I'd wanna stress for people is reading the Bible is not a test of bravery. And uh, sometimes mm. I, f I feel like uh, even, cause I grew up in a Bible church, right? I grew up at King Bible Church. It's an in independent Bible church. and. And in essence, I sometimes felt like there was this test of bravery. Who can take this in the most woodenly literalistic way um, and, and to, to show that we believe? The, the goal is to read the scriptures and to discern what the scriptures are trying to say. And, what, and normally, the, the literal uh, interpretation is what the scriptures are trying to say, right? So do not commit adultery. That's not code. That's not mystery. <laughs> that's straight up prose. That's a command. Do not commit adultery. Don't, don't get fancy with that. Um, take it, take it as, as it's written. You know, but then when we get into, you know, you were talking about genre a minute ago, when we get into the book of Revelation and, and everything's in code, right? We've got 666 and and uh, we've, we've, we've got uh, beasts and we've got whores riding animals uh, rising out of the sea. Horns uh, talking. <laughs> yeah, you know, are, are, like, are we, do we expect a, uh, like a strange promiscuous woman riding a animal with multiple heads <laughs> to walk out of the Pacific Ocean and eat Europe and, and like, <laughs> I, there, I, I think they happen. Did that, is that is that wrong? I haven't watched the news today, so maybe it did. But I think what you're describing, it's still literal because it's what the text is trying to communicate in the form that it's in. 
That's uh, right. You can that's have symbols, funny. metaphors. What is the Bible trying to say here? Uh, and, and then believing that, bowing to that, uh, submitting to that. Uh, so asking the question. I think what you're talking about is when some of our fellows take those things in Revelation, they, that, oh, that's Apache helicopters. That's right. this, that's this. Yeah. And you're like, come on, guys, come yeah. on. Right. Yeah, no, um, yeah. exactly that. Exactly. Yeah. That. So just reading the Bible and, and and with a sense of genre and with a sense of what is the Holy Spirit trying to say here? There's different ways to communicate. Uh, and so what what's the way being used here? What's the message? And then bravery or faith is simply bowing to that. Uh, right. This is the one to whom I will look to the one who is humble and contrite, who trembles at my word. Um, mm. So that that is uh, the, the test, I guess, you know, we would say. All right. Before we leave. Sorry, go ahead. Wyatt. I was gonna say one last note, just really briefly. It's, it, it's OK not to know and to have to ask other yes. people. Absolutely. I, I think this idea that the church is a body with a hand, an eyeball, a head, a foot, all these different pieces. We can ask teachers, pastors, friends, yeah. parents. I don't think we need to feel like we have this burden to make the final determination every time we read the Bible. Yeah. We're a church. We're a body of Christ. Yeah. And just as we all grow up, don't be afraid in your Christianity to take the time and be patient. God is far more patient with you. You will learn as you keep reading. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's I'll, just a plug for the RMM. Yes. <laughs> One of the reasons I love the RMM is because, again, it has you in multiple places in the scripture, which forces us out of our comfort zone. I mean, if the, the truth is, if Paul Carter just chose to what he would read based on preference, I, I would read the Gospels, the letters of Paul, and the Psalms, and probably nothing else, right? That's just, that's that's what most appeals to my personality. But right. so th these four columns force you to see different ways the Bible is communicating, hear a Psalm, hear a bit of apocalyptic literature, hear a bit of history, hear a bit of law, and you, you're constantly switching back and forth between genres. So you're forced to, to, to recognize those genres. And then again, it just has you going again and again and again so through the story, such that by your fourth or fifth time doing the RMM Bible reading plan, you have such a sense of the big picture that you're able to make sense of the small pieces. Uh, so that, that's just a, a plug for the RMM. All right, let's move on uh, into another uh, passage in Matthew 16 that's really important for us. Uh, it's arguably, I would guess, the most, the most famous uh, passage in Matthew 16. Jesus asks the disciples who they say that he is. Peter, of course, puts up his hand and says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus responds, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So that's the controversial uh, controversial part. What did Jesus mean there, particularly when he, he said to Peter, you, you're the rock, right? That uh, on the, Or he said, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. What did he mean and how should we understand that today again i'll throw that out to the panel generally i don't know you're not sure <laughs> good application <laughs> anyone want to take a stab at that well so i'll just throw out mine this may be an incorrect answer but i i've kind of always understood that is um the rock is this confession peter's confession that jesus is the christ the son of the living god and and he will build his church on it kind of like this apostolic 
confession of who Christ is. Um, so not so much Peter as it is the confession of what he says, hey, you are the Christ and, and um, the son of the living God. And that's where Jesus builds his church. That's kind of what I've, in my ignorance, I've interpreted that text. Why your uh, your uh, terminal degree is in the church fathers, right? Did... Um, I have a one teaching degree in that, but my it's biblical theology is the okay. PhD. Did you read? Uh, so I I didn't know this. I, I had always assumed, uh, as Rob said, that this this was kind of the the viewpoint that emerged out of the Protestant Reformation, but that prior to that, the history of the interpretation of the church had really identified this with Peter the person. I was curious to discover uh, John Chrysostom uh, did not. Uh, he he. In his uh, commentary on this, he actually taught that this that it was the faith of of Peter that was being highlighted here, not the person of the office of Peter. Well, I mean that would make sense. There there was uh, an intramural debate about how important Rome was versus how important Byzantium was, uh, Constantinople, and so they would always try to kind of one up each other. And I think this text was part of that conversation, since Peter was assumed to be the uh, the first and most important apostle at Rome, and therefore the so called Pope. Um, yeah, I think it's Martin Luther really who gets this passage and kind of more agrees with the faith or confession reading. Um, it is tough. It is, seems pretty clear that Jesus is talking about Peter. So there might be kind of two things to look at. You could just say, look, it's Peter insofar as he is confessing Christ as an apostle. And really don't have to like say it's either or. Yeah. Uh, it also doesn't say clearly that <laughs> Peter, you're going to go to Rome and start the papacy and yeah. be the first Pope. Like that's not in this text. Yeah. And so I don't think we have to worry about identifying Peter as the person and his confession is kind of being the answer. We're not really giving anything away uh, simply because the text doesn't actually talk about Peter being the Pope. No, I agree. And, and I think, I think sometimes uh, we sort of feel like in order to protect ourselves from encroaching Catholicism, we, we have to exclusively see this in terms of a reference to Peter's faith. I, I think that's definitely there. I agree with Rob and, yep. and, and John Chrysostom that, that, that that's primary. But also he says, you are Peter, and he's talking to Peter. Uh, but what, what I think is very helpful is remembering that in Ephesians 2.20, Paul says that the church is being built up on the foundation of the prophets and apostles with Christ as cornerstone. So all the apostles are part of the foundation, just as much as Peter. Peter was the first to get there. Anyone who is preaching the apostolic gospel right, is laying again the foundation. And, and the apostles are part of that generally. And in fact, everything that is said to Peter here about the keys, et cetera, all, all of that is, is said elsewhere about the apostles in general. And so, you know, when in doubt, quote D.A. Carson, uh, <laughs> got a great, that's, that's a rule of thumb for ministry. Uh, D.A. Carson says here, speaking about Peter, he is in short, and he uses the Latin phrase, primus inter paris, first among equals, and on the foundation of such men, Ephesians 2.20 in brackets, Jesus built his church. So, so yes, uh, Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm building my foundation on you, faithful preacher of the gospel, Peter. But then, but then also Ephesians 2.20, all, all the apostles generally with Christ as cornerstone. Yeah, and I think you just keep going back, as we talked about even the hermeneutic of how we read our Bible and how Matthew seems to keep referring to this idea too of rock. This is not the one and only time rock and, and stuff. This Jesus ends his Sermon on the Mount with the idea of building your life yeah. upon a rock. Well and what happens? The wise guy lives upon the rock yeah. and, and all of the stuff of life comes in, but he still stands. And back, back because I find it fascinating, the passage ends with, then he's tr strictly charged the disciples, tell, tell no one that I am the Christ. Because, yeah. of course, as he's setting this up for, hey, 
you guys are now going to get it. The, the, the Holy Spirit has shown this to you. And when I'm ascended, I'm passing this over to you. And you're going to continue to build upon me, the chief cornerstone. And we are always seeing that. And so to some degree, I believe that anybody who builds their life on the rock of Jesus Christ will can hear kind of Jesus words to Peter, to them. Yeah, As you awesome. build your life on me, you represent me. You, you have this biblical mandate. Um, at the cross conference, David Platt did this beautiful illustration of these little um, Tupperware boxes. And he talks about how you're in Christ and Christ is in you and Christ is in God and the Holy Spirit is in you. And I just think this is the full epitome of what this is talking about. Yeah, good. Good. Well, my wife will appreciate the Tupperware reference. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. <that's... laughs> uh, I want to move on to, to one other verse in, in Matthew 16. As I said, Matthew 16 is a hugely important um, chapter. And, and in the very last couple of verses of Matthew 16, there, there is what, when I was a young man reading through the Bible, was always a very concerning verse every time I hit it and you hit it three times in the Bible. It's, 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 this verse shows up three times. And so if you're reading through the new Testament twice in a year, as we are with the RMM, you're going to hit this six times, six times. You're going to have to figure out what in the world is Jesus saying here? Matthew 16, 28. He says to the disciples, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the son of man coming in his kingdom. So, Six times, you're going to have to figure out, what is Jesus saying there? Did, did Jesus expect the second coming to be within the lifetime of the disciples? Um, if so, was he wrong? Uh, as I said, when I was a young man, I found that verse very concerning. And, and I'd love for you to help any of our listeners who might be having that same struggle. I think there are maybe a couple ways to, to how generally this is understood. I think one is, you know, this is referring to what we see in Acts you know, the beginning of Acts, Jesus ascending into heaven. You know, we talked about Stephen's vision of the Ancient of Days, Daniel 7, and he is seeing Christ at the right hand of the Father. So some would see this as Jesus establishing his kingdom by going, ascending to the right hand of the Father, and now he is ruling and reigning. Some, some maybe preterists would see this as referring to 70 AD, God's judgment against Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, the ending of the Jewish system, right? So um, that would happen before the death of some of the apostles. Um, I think my view, and I think this, this, at least Schreiner, I think maybe would agree, Tom Schreiner would agree, is that what do we have right next to this? It's the transfiguration yeah. where Jesus stands on the mountain and his glory is revealed. The law, Elijah, Moses stand next to him and the disciples only see Jesus. You know, I think probably that's where I would land on saying, I think he's referring to this. Probably second is I, I can see the preterist argument. I, I, it's interesting to me, um, but that's a personal thing. But I think that's where I kind of land is this is ultimately referring to uh, the transfiguration that's just going to happen. I agree. Those are the, the two most compelling arguments. Anybody want to add to that or vote for one? Well, I just think personally, I, I kind of take a, not an either or, but a both and uh, in the sense of, I think that there's the transfiguration. I think there's the whole, again, in Matthew, since this is, we're dealing with Matthew and we're, we're heading constantly to Matthew 28, yeah. all authority is given unto me and I'm sending you out. And, and this kingdom language has been there all throughout. And then you get into acts and you see this stuff played out again by other, other gospel writers. So I, I, I don't think I, for me, I don't land on one or the other. I think it's cumulative of all of this type of stuff that, and I think they got it. I think the disciples themselves said, we, we, 
we we've kind of seen it coming and yet some of them still struggled hence the question will you now set up your kingdom um and that's why i think he says some of you will not because the very next chapter in acts you know then peter just hammers it i mean mike drops a full perspective of the kingdom and and stuff like that so that's what that's my been in my approach is more of a both end than an either or yeah, good. Point. I think that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I, I think Daniel 7's at play. There's a son of man who ascends to the ancient days on the clouds, after which time he gives the kingdom to his people. The transfiguration is part and parcel of that process that at the ascension, when he goes up in the clouds to the father, is really the, the more or less beginning of the end part of the fulfillment. The kingdom then is spread across Acts. And in Revelation, the book opens with the son of man in his kind of transfiguration glory look. <laughs> Mm. And uh, so that's the way I view it. So I, I kind of like the both end point of view. Yeah, I, I personally think that this is one of the situations in which the chapter divisions don't serve us well. Yeah. Uh, chapter divisions, of course, were not part of the original uh, manuscripts. They were added many, 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 many centuries later. Um, and, and I think they're unhelpful here because it, to the experience of the reader, this is, these are the last words of Matthew 16, right? So you close your Bible and you, you spend the rest of the day wondering, what in the world does that mean? And, and what if Jesus was wrong? And, and, and uh, what does that do to my faith? And then, and then the next day, by the time you've had another night's sleep, you read Matthew 17. And, and there you, you get the transfiguration there to pull that chapter division out. Because in all three of the synoptic, uh, synoptic gospels where this saying occurs, the very next verse is mm. well, they went up the mountain and had the transfiguration. That's right. And and so I think without that chapter division, this is not even a concern. This is not an issue. That that connection becomes obvious. Um, but I, I just think this is one of those instances where the chapter division is just not very helpful at all. Um, now I want to move forward from Matthew in Acts uh, Acts fifteen, which was the first chapter that we read uh, this this week in our journey through Acts. We read the narrative of the first church council, uh, the Jerusalem council. Why? Uh, tell us what the issue was there and uh, tell us how it was resolved. And uh, then after you give us the basic narrative, I'll have some rapid fire questions for the panel. Yeah. Um, so I'll be very basic and we can talk through it. The, the problem was, how does a Jewish and a Gentile Christian get saved? <laughs> Do Gentile Christians need to obey the law of Moses, like get, get circumcised? So you'll have a lot of Jewish Christians, even some Pharisees who are converted, we find out. And they're very, they, they're just a little bit uncomfortable with Gentiles being saved as Gentiles. Ends up kind of being a big blowout, and there needs to be a council that's convened in Jerusalem. So uh, Paul and Barnabas come, and others are there like Peter. They kind of give their case. Peter talks about, probably Acts 10, really, the uh, all foods are clean kind of idea is in the background. Uh, Paul and Barnabas give their case. And then James, the brother of Jesus, seems to kind of give the final word. He might be the, the boss man in this kind of uh, council. And he says, look, it's okay. Uh, he cites Amos 9. The, the Gentiles were included in this prophecy in Amos 9. They're okay. They can be included. But we get that we need to help each other out and be sensitive. So there are going to be some things that we're going to ask Gentiles to do in order to get along with our Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. They write a letter. It gets sent out. And that's kind of the end of the story. We can talk through the details, but that's a summary. Extremely helpful summary. Mm -hmm. um, so here are my rapid fire questions. Is Christian, uh, is Christian morality minimalistic? Uh, it's shocking as a first time Bible reader to, to say, okay, so we got these Gentile Christians. They're going to be saved by grace. Okay. And then after you're saved by grace, here's basically what you need to know. And, and then he basically just says, you know, don't eat food with the blood in it. 
don't commit sexual immorality, try to avoid the appearance of, of uh, idolatry. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see you next Good Friday. And, and you think, <laughs> is that it? Because uh, that, that's a pretty minimalistic list. So it, help us understand that if you can. Question two, what can we learn from the way that James interprets the prophecy of Amos in the story? Again, just to go back to that hermeneutics, how we're reading the Bible. I mean, Amos 9, that, that's a prophecy about the tent of David. How, how did that get to be a story about why Gentiles should come into the church? Uh, three, third question, are church councils still a good way to solve doctrinal disputes? And then here, uh, number four, if you were going to call a church council today, what would you want it to discuss? All right, open to the panel. <laughs> I feel like we have need music here that goes dun dun dun. Because <laughs> when I when I read this, I did think about 2021, and I thought about COVID and restrictions and politics and the vitriol of social media amongst professing evangelicals. Yeah, and I do. I, I can't help but Facebook. wonder. <laughs> yeah, I I can't help but wonder. Well, in regards to the moralism, morally morally minimal, minimalistic, I think again, as you talked about earlier. Remember, this, this is a gathering of Christians who are trying to figure out how this, th these Christians coexist. There is a backdrop, I think, of a greater sense of, of the morality of the gospel, but they're dealing with some of the tensions in how people have actually built their lives and, and stuff. And so here, here are these guys putting out, look, we're not canceling out your you know, millennia of heritage and so on and so forth. But we've got to take all of the Bible has been pointing to Jesus and a whole new covenant and all these types of things. And this is the way this is going to look. However, since love is the first commandment, right? Or sorry, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. And the second, love thy neighbor as thyself. They're modeling that to say now, but we are asking. So I love the two-way street. Jewish brothers and sisters, love your Gentiles not to oppress them with stuff that is normal for you. Gentile brothers and sisters, love your Jewish uh, brothers and sisters to, to not just flaunt this idea that you have no concept of, that there's a sense by which we have to come together governed by the gospel. Um, and I think that's something I wish we could do maybe a little bit better in 2021 um, when I see some of the vitriol between professing Christians. Yeah, I think I think this idea of the law of love, if you want to talk about is Christian morality minimalistic, in a sense it is. It's simple. It's love God and love your neighbor perfectly. That's kind of what the call <laughs> is. And we can't do that. And in Christ, we're able to attempt and do that. But it's simple. Love one another. And you have this cultural clash. You have Jewish believers who live very differently now having to sit next to a brother or sister who is a Greek who lives very differently. And as we see in, as see in Antioch, that blows up even amongst apostles. And um, what we need to see there is this law of love. And in first Corinthians, Paul's going to try to deal with this more and just arguing over food and arguing over, oh, you can't eat that and you shouldn't eat that and people judging one another. And he's saying, look, ultimately this does come down to don't make this a battle with your brother, make loving one another, the greater priority, the greater thing. And that's what we see, I think, in this part is just making love the priority. Yeah. Let me read one verse, then I'll, I'll stop. I think this will give you a life verse for many of us. Verse 19, mm. therefore, in my judgment, we should not cause difficulties for those among the Gentiles. And insert, instead of Gentiles, someone who disagrees with me on masks, government, <laughs> vaccines, whatever, <laughs> just yeah. don't cause difficulties for them. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's that's well said. Yeah, I mean, the 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 rule that they send out to the churches is is minimalistic, if we can use that phrase. Basically, says be sexually pure, be socially and culturally considerate. Um, th there it is, right? And, and now that doesn't want, we're, we're not advocating for, you know, antinomianism. We're just, we're just oh, saying, yeah. I, I really do think that in every generation, we have to fight a, a battle again for, for a grace-based, love-based mm. yeah, uh, approach to Christianity. In every generation, we trend towards legalism. Uh, and, and every generation, the, the gospel of grace needs to be proclaimed that where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Uh, right. If, if, you know, Luther said that the truly saved Christian has no need of law. Um, now he advocated for law because he said very few people are truly saved. Uh, many, many who think they are not, but, but his point was, if, if you've got the transformed heart, if you've got the Holy spirit, you don't need a bunch of laws, you know, touch, not handle, not taste, not that's, that's, that's not what Christianity is about. Uh, there should be an inclination in your heart to love God and, and to love others and to be sensitive to their mm. concerns and, and to recognize their, their various cultural situations. And, and so I, I just find that interesting. I think it's worth banging that drum because in every generation we incline towards legalism and, and it's just, mm. it's like, you know, that shopping cart at the, at the grocery store that just kind of leans left and you're constantly fighting, right? I think that's just gotta be part of the pastor's mindset in every generation. Just, just remind people, this is not about law. This is not about the details of this, that, and the other. You know, it's it's about getting the spirit into people and and, and living by the law of love. So I think that's worth Paul. The, it's interesting. You talked about James's use of Amos here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know about the rest of you guys wanted it. I, I love the fact that this is James, the half brother of Jesus. If you th think back of how this particular brother reacted to Christ pre crucifixion and, and stuff like that, but then does not Amos, what the, this passage that he quotes, sound eerily similar to Jesus in his final address saying, a new commandment I leave with you that you love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. That's one side of the coin. And, you know, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles will come, says the Lord, who makes these things known. So there's this sense. And then later on in the prayer of John 17, Jesus says, I want them to be one as I am one so that the world may know that you have sent me. So I've always looked at that. And when I've seen that, that James is saying, basically he's parroting, I think his own brother by quoting the old Testament and saying, listen, guys, the way we love each other proves that we are truly followers of Christ. And I should mm -hmm. know, cause I am biologically, I have him as a stepbrother, but he's my savior now. Yeah. And then secondly, the way we have unity around the gospel shows a, critical unbelieving world you can't deny that jesus is god yeah. and i just wonder if the 21st century church in canada the united states and the world we live in in 2021 stood back and had an honest conversation with ourselves why should the world believe we're followers of christ and what do we do that actually leads the world to say like it or lump it but jesus is god yeah now i'll say why you wanted to jump in there you know steve did a good job uh I just think this passage, like anything else in scripture is meant, uh, Amos 9 in particular. Yeah. When you talk about David, it's meant to look to a future David. David at this time is probably dead. He is dead. <laughs> so there must be some other David's uh, booth being rebuilt. Jesus is that David. And he invites all people to salvation in him. John 17, I think, was mentioned by Steve that we might be one. <laughs> it, it, um, it, it, there's a massive 
hermeneutical point that you're that you're making. I just want to kind of highlight it and and blow trumpets around it so everybody gets it. Uh, this is a prophecy about Israel that James, the brother of Jesus, after a council of Christians, says actually applies to the church. I mean, if if you think about that, that that's a massive hermeneutical bombshell. Because, you know, in the church that I grew, you know, in the, in the religious world that I grew up in, hey, if that prophecy was about Israel, don't you go applying it to the church? Well, here's James doing exactly that. Under the power of the Holy Spirit, he's saying, guys, actually, I think this is about the church. I think this is about the greater David's tent, the church, and, and about how we need to lengthen our cords and strengthen our stakes because the Gentiles are coming in. And so we need to loosen up in some ways. We need to, you know, broaden out in some ways because the Gentiles are coming. And, uh, and, and of course, you know, I, I semi quoted William Carey there because, you know, that's, that's how, that's the vein that, it, that he went in as well in this, in this sense. So, so don't you find it fascinating, point. Paul, Sorry. you were saying, he's saying to the Jews, you got to let things out a little bit, but as the Gentiles are coming in, guys, you're coming in. So guess what? Things are going to get a little, because we're family now. That's right. <laughs> Well, right? Right. Well yeah. Now, just to, we didn't touch on, and I know we're going a little long, but we're having such good conversations. Uh, if anyone doesn't like it, I suppose they can just stop listening. <laughs> that's, the, that's the joy of, of, of a podcast. Uh, but we didn't get into the, the function of church councils. And, and, I, and I want to, because, uh, you know, as Stephen was saying, we're not very good at, at figuring this stuff out anymore. It gets way nasty, way too quick. But I love what David Peterson says here. He says, in this historical framework, Luke presented conflict and debate as legitimate and necessary elements in the process of discerning God's will. He showed how such disagreement serves to reveal the true basis for fellowship and elicit the fundamental principles of community identity. So close quote on that. And then Ben Witherington III in his commentary in the same passage says, uh, this process shows us that the way to resolve conflict in antiquity was to call a meeting of the assembly of the people and listen to and consider speeches following the conventions of deliberate rhetoric, the aim of which was to overcome stasis and produce concord or unity, close quote. Mm. I just think that's fabulous. Like yes. that is such a better way. In my experience today, churches tend to deal with conflict in one of two ways, churches and organizations, either by shutting down dissent, making it impossible for people to talk about things, Stephen, you and I have had that experience in, in our wider fellowship of churches, or to just go atomic and nuclear right off the bat, and we start mudslinging on social media. Here we have deliberation, rhetoric, speeches, consideration, discernment, decision. Mm. And, and I just, this is- At a, the end, unity. Yeah, all, all in, in pursuit of concord. Right. Yeah, but also very different perspectives. Like sometimes it's not super helpful just to get a bunch of people who think exactly like you like in a room yeah. and then discuss a big thing. Like you have Jews here who want Gentiles probably to follow the law. And then you have Paul coming in and going, hey, look at look what's going on. We need to rethink things. So you have a lot of different perspectives with the one goal of truth and unity coming together. And I think also that's why we see this beautifully pictured out. I think the fact that Acts 15 is in the Bible gives us at least a model yeah. how we can work towards unity i mean early christians all got it they did councils local regional big whatever but they they worked it out i mean you have a very early in church even the 100s you have small councils that they work out theology and in fact you can even see paul i think it's paul and barnabas at the beginning of the chapter they're debating those who we might call judaizers i'm not sure if that's the exact 
right term for them here, but they're debating people who are strongly against what Paul would conceive as the gospel. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. he's able to actually work it out and they're not throwing rocks at each other yet anyway. But don't, but don't miss this one thing though, right? You and I have the bit, we're reading about this after the fact, and this is yes. the key part of our world today. Some people would read this and go, well, we do this. This is why we get on Facebook and we dare TGC to have these open debates and stuff. No, this happened behind, behind closed doors. Yes. They, they argued this out. There was a select audience and then there was consensus and prayer. And then they agreed to the messaging that was going to get sent out. This didn't happen live on Facebook live. Yeah, no, that's yes. a good point. So how do we transpose the principles? I would say that the, the because, the, you know, the conciliar conciliar movement failed, right? Uh, right. Throughout the Middle Ages and, and then Luther, too, in the in the Reformation was trying to make the argument that we need to get away from the from the authority of the Pope and we need to get back to councils like this. Now, obviously, that argument didn't fly. Right. Um, so I, I don't think the direct application of this is possible in our world. Right. Um, you know, what would it look like? What would an evangelical council, what would a, a Christian council look like? You couldn't even get people to agree to come. You wouldn't get anyone to agree that James is going to chair the meeting. Like, it's just, okay. So, but how do we take the, the principles and reapply them in the, in the current evangelical mess? Um, you know, Stephen, you made reference to the, I wasn't sure whether to, how direct we wanted to make application here, but yes, there is a raging conversation right now within evangelicalism in Canada and, and I imagine in the States too, um, over how we relate to uh, the civil magistrate. Uh, a conversation that, in, in a sense, I'm glad we're having. It's the first legitimately theological conversation we've had in a couple of years. So I'm excited. Uh, it came about, though, under the result of, of the pressure we're experiencing because of this pandemic. Right. But people are all over the map, and tempers are, are running pretty hot. Uh, rhetoric is getting is getting unpleasant and it is we're airing our laundry out before the neighbors so what could this passage say to us about maybe a better approach well again i'm a bit like ed stitzer i can tell you all the problems i'm not sure i got all the solutions um and uh but i i just i wish i do wish that if we're all truly christians that there could be a sense and maybe i'm being idealistic where we would call some of each, call each other, or, you know, we'd find a way to come together a little bit and say, look, we want to have an honest discussion, debate, really come at this hard, and then agree with how we're going to put this out in front of the world. Now, again, well, I just, just to play devil's advocate here, and it's, yeah, I'll pretend that this is hypothetical, but it's not. Uh, like, so what if nobody wants to talk personally or, you know, you disagree publicly, and so they unfriend you on Facebook, and you can't <laughs> communicate. Uh, like, what what is the right way to do this? And is is a public debate? So I, I've agreed to be part of a three person panel uh, right. to to discuss this issue for Wycliffe College in Toronto, and they're going to record it. I think there's some usefulness to that. The three participants are we all, uh, you know, we to the best of my knowledge, we all like each other, and 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 it's going to be civil putting that out there for people to think about is that is that useful is it not useful oh i think it is but what you just described is again you're going to get together it's going to be recorded you're going to put it out you're 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 the idea is it's a bunch of christians coming together to talk through this the idea of putting it out is for the greater world to see it but it's after the the fact it's not live and in tetracolor where if it goes off the rails it's for everybody to watch it go off the rails. This, this one um, is live. Uh, oh, okay. I, hope it I don't anticipate it. Right. I, I just think that that 
you know, again, all I'm saying, I'm not against us using our, our modern mechanisms. I mean, what we're doing right here to some degree is, is doing that. Although technically the four of us kind of agree, I'm all for healthy debate. I, I, I would love, I am not in the camp of civil disobedience. I'm just going to call it what it is, but I'm very sensitive to it and it makes me uncomfortable. And I read my Bible and I wrestle with it and say, Lord, I know, I want to know deep in my heart that I'm being true. And yet I never reach the threshold by which I think, no, I got to pick this fight. Um, but I would love to be able to talk to somebody about this, hear their passionate view from this, from the other side, without us each mudslinging at each other and then putting it in front of a bunch of unsaved people to say, you guys be the judge as to who's right and wrong on this. Yes. May, may I just add, I think there's a prior problem we haven't actually addressed. Paul, when Paul talks about Jerusalem, the poor there, and those in Ikea and Greece who are supporting them, he says something to the effect of, look, you actually owe the Jerusalemites because of their spiritual gift, a material gift. Mm -hmm. There is a sense of obligation that Paul had, uh, Paul and the Pauline Christians had towards each other. Just because you lived in Greece doesn't mean that you weren't obligated to serve those in Jerusalem. But how many of us who live, like, let's say in Toronto, feel obligated to Vancouver? Yeah, there's a, there's a prior point. sense of obligation that Christians have towards each other that needs to be emphasized. I mean, Jesus' prayer in John 17 was already mentioned, that unity prayer. Uh, the Lord's Supper, I think, although there it's for the local church in terms of physical practice, is demonstrating a spiritual unity of the body of Christ. There is a prior problem that I don't think we can actually solve the public process without reaffirming the need for church unity we yeah. have it's a bit of a scandal to be honest the bible assumes a unity and it's scandalous that we're okay with it there's a church down the road no but like they don't necessarily know or talk to like that's a bit of a scandal right like not that i have to do all everything but you know what i'm trying to communicate here yeah. so that needs to get worked out then secondly then i think something like the jerusalem council could happen i'm not saying you have to have a national council but right. an ontario-wide gathering is possible if we feel obligated if you don't no one will come yeah, yeah. So it's, i think we've got to preach this message it is part of it's the effect of the gospel right the effect of the gospel is unity and yet the actual practices uh, practice in our um, province in particular ontario is disunity <laughs> like this is wild there should be a charitability that we have kind of when we're not discussing heresy and are you a Christian, you know, you know, the, the heat dial got turned up on some of these early councils oh. because we're talking about, uh, you know, um, Arianism. Those are some pretty serious issues. But can but I just, well, sorry, I, I didn't mean, I shouldn't have cut you off. I just wanted to read, there's two verses I want to read in Acts 15, but you should finish. Yeah. I was just going to say, we're, we can be charitable in this conversation, and that's what's disappointing is not a whole lot of, we, we, everything now has to become a gospel issue. Well, if you're not yeah. going to church, oh, it's a gospel issue, and it's like, okay, like, what did the early fathers, what, did the, what does Paul consider a gospel issue? And it's certainly not this, and we, it's not that it's not serious, but there's a charitability and a graciousness that can be attributed in conversations yeah, the the category. Uh, yeah, and I know what I know what you're saying. Gospel issue. I suppose everything is a gospel issue, but but yeah. in but not ultimatizing everything, not not absolutizing everything, um, and and recognizing that we need to sort this out, and we can't start saying if you disagree with me, you're not a good person like yeah. that. We there needs to be space. I think what the Jerusalem Council is saying is there needs to be space for rigorous debate, but that has to be done charitably toward the end of concord. And I actually think in, in our context uh, in Canada, first of all, we're, we're, we're not very charitable. And it doesn't appear that we're looking for concord. 
it appears that we're looking for victory. Right. Um, but then on the other, that's the one ditch. The ditch on the other side of the road is it, people will almost accuse you of, of fostering disunity if you present a thought on an issue. Yeah. That if we're you too sensitive. Debate. So we or have. If to you act- won't engage with them in, in some vitriol argument on social media. Yeah. We've got it to be more a coward, or it means you don't really to believe issues, in something. But more charitable, so more comfortable and more charitable. Can I what? read two Bible saying? verses? Acts fifteen. What? what? You're going to read the Bible on a Acts fifteen <laughs> verses one and two. Some men came down from Judea, and we learn later that they were unauthorized, and began to teach the brothers: unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. So it's a salvation issue. Yeah. Verse two. After Paul and Barnabas had engaged them in serious argument and debate. Yeah. Paul and Barnabas and so on. It goes on. The point is, who cares if it's a salvation issue? Serious debate on the biblical text. Yeah. The Bible is our authority and it can clarify. Okay, right. No but matter. Done with the, the end of Concord. So I'd like to see more <laughs> yeah, that's debate, it, that's it. Yes. more engagement, yep. but less meanness. Yes. Uh, and, well, and, and but I think I think Paul, Paul Barnabas is on to something. They Paul engaged. He's on to something with that obligation. And I say this because I'm I'm in the east end of the country. We're a very small church with a very small church planning ministry that we need a lot of help and prayer and partners. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you, in the six years I've been here, in the couple of years we started Mile One, I mean, there's guys. I mean, Paul, your church is a major partner with us. I feel that sense of obligation, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean that camaraderie, yeah. that sense of hey, I know what it is to be cared for um, from churches across this country who make it possible for Steve Bray and Calvary Baptist Church and Mile One Mission to do what it does. And I just had a meeting with my staff yesterday and said, guys, we have to be humble and realize the people that are praying for us and sacrificially giving to us so we can be here and do this. And imagine if that went across the country that we thought that way, because I can tell you, Having lived this, this has really helped me understand what it means when you resonated right away when you said we, we don't feel obligated to each other. Yeah. No, Romans 15, 26, 27, Paul says we, we're, we are obligated. I mean, that's in the text. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, uh, I think it's O is the word he uses, but it's that idea. And then also, I think it's 1 Corinthians 8 and 9 when he's raising money. It's, it's also kind of in there that, that there should be equality among the churches is a thing he emphasizes. I think also the... the something that I read in first Corinthians 11, where he's talking about the Lord's supper and he's saying, Hey, there's divisions among you. And he says this verse 18, um, there must be factions among you. I'm not surprised. There must be in order that those who are genuine among you might be recognized. And it's like what division and disunity does is a start the cream of the crop start to kind of rise up. And we start to be able to see like, who are the people causing division in an ungodly way? And then who are the people under obligation to one another seeking to find unity in this? And I think there's division provides a great opportunity for us to figure out who's genuine among us, you know? And to clarify on that one point is that those causing division were the, the super apostles who are prideful, uh, telling other people that are beneath them, wouldn't eat with them. There's some very clear things happening there. It's not just because someone disagreed, you know, yes, <laughs> over the yes. Bible. It's, it's very obvious, I think, instead of just going to be obscure. Just to tie a knot on this, and then we got one more conversation. We're so far behind, oh. but I'm having a great time. Um, <laughs> tie a knot on this. I actually think it's a good thing that evangelicals are discussing important topics. And, and you know why? You and I had this conversation a couple of years ago when the Trinity debate happened. 
I thought, isn't it great that we're having this conversation instead of arguing about which musical instruments are most spiritual? Because that's that I remember is like the big argument from my childhood, whether <laughs> or, organs were, were more ordained than than guitars. Uh, they thank are. The Lord, seriously. Yeah. Thank the Lord sir, that we're having serious theological conversation within the church. I think that's actually very helpful. Um, and, and, and I think that will contribute to the maturing of the evangelical church, which is so important. I, I just think that right now we're not very good at it because we haven't done it in a while. And uh, so we, we need to develop a comfort level with dialogue and debate, rigorous debate, but it needs to be done in a spirit of love and charity with an eye towards concord. Mm. Um, I think if we could get there. Uh, that would be very, very helpful. All right, let's, uh, let's move to the last one, um, but really important, Acts 19. Acts 19 is one of those um, walls that you can run into when you're reading your Bible and it just, you run into it and it brings you up short as a first time Bible reader. And you wonder what in the world did I just read? What am I to do with it? And then there are so many different interpretations of this, or, or there are at least a handful of different interpretations of, about this, which you will encounter in the Christian marketplace that can, I think be quite jarring and disorienting. So in Acts 19, there's this really weird story. Paul goes to Ephesus and he meets these people who, who are some kind of disciple uh, we'll, we'll just leave it at that. But they only know the baptism of John. They've never even heard of the Holy Spirit. So Paul completes their education, as it were. He brings them up to speed. They're baptized. And then immediately they begin to speak in tongues. Now, this passage is, is used within the, the Pentecostal world uh, to suggest that sometimes um, there is a delay between our coming to Christ and our reception of the Holy Spirit. That, if that is true, I'm terrified. Uh, because I can't live a second of the Christian life without the Holy Spirit. So I'm, I'm nervous about that. And then at other times in, in the same sort of uh, holiness or charismatic communities, there can, there can be the application from this text that all people will speak in tongues once they've achieved a certain level of maturity, that that's the takeaway. That also terrifies me. Um, and, 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 and that I don't think is a healthy reading of, of the text. So I'm going to throw it out to the panel. What is this text saying? Um, if not that, if not these other interpretations, what is this text saying? And how, how should we understand the message here? I just say quick, big picture. The same person talking here, Paul, can also say, no one can say Lord, say Lord except by the Holy Spirit. We're all, we're all baptized in the Spirit. He also talks about spiritual gifts as each one having kind of different gifts. Meaning universalizing every gift to everyone doesn't seem to be what Paul's getting in other places. When it comes to this passage, I think there's a literary function that is maybe primary. The book opens by saying you're going to go to uh, uh, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world. And the sign of that seems to be a repeat of Pentecost, as it were. Mm -hmm. This idea that the Spirit comes shows by signs and wonders that they're included in this new thing that God is doing, this mystery unveiled that both Gentiles and Jews, Samaritans, whoever you are, Samaritans is important, actually, with Ezra and Nehemiah, by the way, in the background. Uh, whoever you are, are one body in Jesus Christ. And well, I don't want to put, I, I, I think that God can do whatever he wants and we can still speak in tongues. But I think in this text, what's being accomplished is the visible sign that God includes all people into the family of God. It's part of what the literary function in the book of Acts is all about. So those are some thoughts, but I'm sure you guys could add more. Yeah. I think you summed it up well. There's only three places in Acts where this speaking of tongues is referenced. 2, 10, and here. I mean, and each time you've got a new people group, you've got this pattern. You talked about patterns at the very beginning of this, Paul, when you read the Bible, you see patterns. 
this is the pattern. And I, I do, you know, I don't want to get into the great charismatic debate, but I do think um, this is just where, you know what, the scripture just bears it out. Um, and I'll keep going back. Scripture interprets scripture and scripture doesn't contradict itself. My problem with some of the extreme charismatic positions on this is to uphold that you've got to deny something somewhere else because yeah. you can't consistently hold it. Yeah, now, I, I do think for those of us that are cessationists have to have a sense of humility. Yeah. Um, right. And it's not as cut and dry as we all like to think it. Cause I was raised, I think in a similar world you were Paul. Um, but I also think that that is, again, that cuts both ways. Yeah, I agree. If you're going to try and make the argument from this text that everybody who comes to a mature understanding of Christ speaks in tongues, you're going to have to deny a lot of other texts because mm -hmm. there are there are numerous texts. I mean, uh, Acts 5, Acts 6, Acts 8, Acts 9, Acts 13, Acts 14, Acts 17, and Acts 18, where people are coming to a full understanding of Christ and there's no mention of anybody speaking in tongues. That's right. So I think the argument falls apart there. Uh, why you gave the R.C. Sproul, um, that's the classic R.C. Sproul answer. And I, I think it's true that this is, in essence, an intentional echo of Pentecost, that each time the gospel sort of jumps a barrier, as it were, Pentecost reverberates to show that these people are just as much in Christ as the Jews, as the Samaritans, etc. Uh, but I think, it, it, I, I think the most important thing to recognize in this text is that the argument falls apart when you recognize these people were not Christians at the start of the story. And some people say, well, they're called disciples. Well, lots of people are called disciples that then all fall away, uh, right? Like Judas for start. How about all the people in John six? You know, it, it says in that story that, that at, at that point, when Jesus started saying the hard stuff, many of his disciples no longer went around with him. So they, they fell away. They weren't, they were not true Christians. They didn't press in as it were. And when Paul asked them the question, have you heard of the Holy spirit? And they say, no, we've not heard that there is a Holy Spirit. <laughs> what kind of Christian doesn't know that there's a Holy Spirit? Yeah. The answer, no, no kind of Christian. David Peterson says here, how could genuine Christians make such a response? So I think the answer is that these are really Old Testament believers who have a messianic yeah. hope. They, you know, they've heard about John the Baptist saying that somebody's coming. But they haven't heard that he's here. They haven't heard the finished work of Christ. So Paul brings them to the point of conversion. And, and then and then I would join hands with the R.C. Sproul uh, right. and say, and, and then there's this this echo of Pentecost to affirm. Can I, can I add one confirming point? Yeah. Christian baptism is baptism into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. If you've not heard of the Holy Spirit, you've been not you've not been baptized as a Christian. Yeah, that's, I would say like, that's really like it's I think that's an excellent point. Yeah. Yeah, well done. That you made. <laughs> Sorry, not my own point. That <laughs> <But> you made. <laughs> I, I Thank you, Paul, yeah. for making my wonderful point for me. Yeah. I thought my point was excellent, but <laughs> I stole my point from uh, David. It's all good. Good. Well, that's all the time that we have for today. Uh, we'll be back on the 28th to talk about the previous uh, seven chapters in each of these different columns. Uh, but before we sign off, Pastor Rob, I'm wondering if you could pray for us, pray sure. for our listeners. We've, we've made reference today to the fact that we're living in some unusual times. There are some some live tensions in the evangelical world. We, we are, I think, being tested by God, tried by God, explored by God. Uh, we are experiencing some dark providence. So pray for us, pray for our listeners. And then also, if you could uh, pray again for our brother Stephen and uh, for his full and complete recovery. Uh, if you could do that, that'd be great. Amen. Yeah, for sure. Lord, we thank you so much again for your word and the opportunity to discuss it. And as we think of even uh, Nehemiah 8, uh, your word can bring about such conviction 
It can bring about such joy and such unity when we humble ourselves before it. And that's what we need to see more and more in our day, unity around the truths of your word and the gospel. And so we pray for that. And we pray that you would use us, um, those of us on this panel and those of us who are listening to work towards that unity, that charitability and that graciousness to one another. And it all stems from the truth of your word, a, a hunger for your word and a hunger for the gospel. So would you do that Holy Spirit in all of us? Um, thank you very much for my brother, Steve, um, who has learned dependency on you in a powerful way, I'm sure, over these past few weeks. So, Lord, we, we do pray that you would give him complete recovery and um, bring about healing, and not only to himself, but to his family, whose, I'm sure, nerves were shook by this as well. Um, Lord, we are all dust, and we recognize that every day, and as we wake up, we remind ourselves how much dust we are and how dependent we are you for everything for life for breath and to know your word so um lord be everything to us may we call upon you daily praying to you in every moment clinging to the gospel at all times and we thank you again for this time in jesus name amen 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 well thank you for joining us and uh, thank you panel for being with us uh, again this week god willing We'll be back next Thursday, January 28th, for another episode of Going Deeper with the Into the Word panel. We'll see you then.